welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. It was my great pleasure to chat with Rowena Murray, who's a professor of education at the University of the West of Scotland. She was recommended to me as someone who's been an inspiration through her books and structured writing retreats to many people. And I'm sure you'll be inspired by her as well. She's an internationally renowned expert and author on academic writing and runs writing retreats. In this conversation, she talks about the writing retreats, both for the importance of learning behaviours around how to write, but also for the value of the academic friendships that arise from that. She also talks about the challenges of being a woman professor, dealing with unremitting criticism and undermining, and in having to fight for academic writing as a legitimate research topic in her own right as part of her own career path. And she talks about the writing group support and good self-care practices that she has in place that have helped her deal with this. And just to give advance notice that there are a couple of spots with some network audio issues, but these are short. Welcome, Rowena. Thank you very much for joining me from Scotland. Where in Scotland are you, actually? Um, I'm based at the University of the West of Scotland, which is in Paisley, Hamilton, Dumfries, Ayr and London. But I live in a in a village called Loch Winnock, which is where I am just now, which yeah. is lovely. So, yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Um, yeah, so it's a wider access university. So it would be, I mean, I've worked at Glasgow and I've worked at Strathclyde. I worked at Penn State when mm. I was there and I did my PhD. So um, I'm quite happy with the wider access idea. Um, I've worked in summer schools and so on when I was at Glasgow and Strathclyde. So this is uh, a university with a wider access um mission but it also has kind of pockets of excellence and the usual stuff as well so by wider access do you mean that they have uh, that they're more open to students from different ability levels or what does wider access mean that's what it means yeah usually yeah mm-hmm. so that would mean different things probably in different schools or mm-hmm. different faculties yeah. yeah yeah does that create more challenge in teaching well, I mean, there are people who arguably might need more support to adjust to university culture, people coming from colleges into second or even third year. In fact, one of my PhD students is researching that kind of what we call direct entry um, and how they make the kind of the transition from, you know, anywhere else, whether it be a college or whatever, um, to university. So, But I'm not sure that we provide you know, not an awful lot of differences, different courses or anything for that population because it's now quite mixed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, as it's grown, it's, it's probably grown its mission as well. Yeah, yeah. And could you just fill us in a little bit on your background, just very briefly, just to orient people to where you're coming from? Okay, my background is um, mainly starting off in Scotland, so school and University of Glasgow was where I did my first degree and then went to... And what, uh, what was that in? That was in um, languages and literature, okay. so mainly English, Scottish language and literature. Yeah. Um, and then I went to be, I was asked, somebody, as a, just almost as I was graduating from Glasgow, somebody said, did I want to go and be a volleyball coach in Wilson College in Pennsylvania? <laughs> and I went, hmm. So I had already been accepted to do the PhD at Glasgow, and I decided instead to go and do volleyball coaching. And while I was there, I applied to Penn State. And did my PhD in English at the Pennsylvania State University and learned a lot about writing. I taught rhetoric and composition, mm-hmm. you know, those required writing courses. So that would really be where that 
kind of track in my career started because I learned an awful lot about that, even for myself as a writer, but a lot about the literature and the, the, the knowledge base, the scholarship that there is about that. So what, what I should have said at the beginning and what I will say in the introduction that I set up, sure. you're this most amazing author, <laughs> writer of all these books around academic writing. Yes. I, I remember first being introduced to your book by one of my own PhD students um, uh-huh. who was struggling with writing her PhD thesis. She found your book was the really key enabler for her to get moving and she just said, I wish I had have read this at the beginning. And so now your your How to Write a Thesis book is one that I recommend to all my PhD students. So I'm really thrilled to be able to talk to you. So you've, <laughs> you've, you had this interest and passion for writing through that PhD then. I did. I mean, having studied writers you know and and got to know a lot of them as well you Mm. see how they build writing into their lives or how they build a life around writing so that's kind of fascinating and how difficult it is for smart people myself Mm. included I mean I did very well at Glasgow but I was writing essays the night before and it was just horrific (laughs) I mean I did really well but it was horrible Mm. so that fascinated me as well didn't just annoy me or terrify me but it also kind of fascinated me and while I was doing, while I was learning to teach these writing courses, I learned a lot about, all oh, right, okay, that's how you structure an argument. That's how you structure a report. That's how you structure the behaviours around producing a writing project, particularly something as mm. major as a, a paper, an academic paper or a thesis. And when I came back to Scotland, what I started doing was just, I just started doing a thesis writing course. I thought, we must do some of this stuff in the UK. And of course, as most people know, we don't. Um, and I started doing, in the mid-80s, I started doing thesis writing courses. And as I did them for five or ten years, I developed the content for that book, How to Write a Thesis. And in working with law students. Was that just sorry, thesis writing courses at your own university or were you offering them more generally? Initially, yes. But then there was demand that grew and grew and grew for courses at other universities as well in Scotland and beyond Scotland too. Yeah, And then, then it grew into courses for academics and writing for publication, writing book proposals. You know, it just kind of kept growing because people recognised that there was a need for it or an interest in it. And I, I kind of hesitate to use the word need because... You know, it's been said to me at my university when I, I do I do a writing retreat every every month and everybody's singing their praises and saying how helpful they are. That's not in question for those who choose to go. But there was a senior officer said to me, you know, yeah, they're really good. They're really productive. It's great what you're doing, but I hope there comes a day when people won't need writing retreats. And I'm mm. like, you're so not getting the the broader context that has been created within which writing retreats are essential. Not everybody chooses to go, I have to keep saying, but for those who choose to go, it's a haven, it's a behaviour change model, it's a network, and for women particularly, it's mainly women who choose to go uh, to most retreats in most places in the world, actually. Um, So it's not about needing, it isn't a sense about needing, but it's about the environment that does not allow us really to write regularly in the ways that we want to, or to get that level of concentration that we need for writing. God, there's so much there I want to pick up on. I don't know where to start. Um, so you talked about the need and yes. that that's sort of down to the broader context. Can you just talk a bit more about that? About Because you know, that sounds like you feel like there's something driving this need that's beyond just individuals wanting to learn to write as a nice-to-do thing. Well, I think that I think it is individuals wanting to write and not being sure how to go about that, not being sure how 
to fit the writing into their working lives, mm. particularly, and, you know, not having it suck up all their personal life. But I think there is also a need because people don't learn how to write. And that would have been my story as well. We don't learn how to construct arguments. We sort of are smart enough to work it out. And we don't learn the behaviours either for writing, you know, for managing writing and juggling other complex tasks. But the environment, the major thing is um, that while written outputs are very much in people's workloads or activity plans, they're there. There are specific targets. Mm. Uh, submit or publish two papers a year. Whatever it is, people will have concrete, specific, hard targets in their plans. And these will come up at the review in a year's time. Have you done that? And everybody knows this. But the writing time is not in their activity plan. The the quality time, the you know, the the time to concentrate and to read and know that the, the writing time will be protected, the dedicated to writing, mm. writing and nothing else. And when you give people, smart people, or maybe any people, dedicated writing time, it's astonishing how much they do immediately. They come into writing, writing retreats and they immediately start writing, which it's not, I mean, it's partly because I'm there, so I'm told, or somebody's there playing this role of start now, stop now, take a break, and enforcing that. And some people want to keep writing and not break, and I'm like, no, you will be taking a break for so half an hour. So you bring out the hook and drag them away. Metaphorically speaking, <laughs> I should say, since this is public, yes, there is no hook, there is no punishment, there is no real forcing as such, but there kind of is. I insist on them breaking, having a break, before they break, if you know what I mean. Um, so, how quickly people write when they're in that context is fascinating um, and tells us that it is about the environment. If you take people from the workplace environment and put them in the right the structured writing retreat environment that I run, they immediately produce there and it's a lot less stressful. People use the words positive pressure, mm. which I don't think they'd be using about trying to write in, a, in campus environments um, Having said that, I used to say it was not possible, I used to write in my publications, it was not possible to transfer the writing retreat environment to campus environments. But now we see that it is, that people, if they replicate the dedicated writing time, like if they go away from the department, away from the office, away from the phones, unplug from the internet, um, have coffee on tap, you know, that sort of replicate as far <laughs> as they can the retreat environment, um, they can do that on campuses or in their houses. Or some people rent cottages. And there's all sorts of models of kicked off with postgraduate students and, and staff. But they need to just privilege writing over everything else. And if they don't do that, they don't get it. They don't get that level of concentration yeah. uh, for writing. So there's there's something key about just that focus. And there it seems like there's multiple aspects of it. There's the time aspect of it and, and blocking that time. There's the disconnecting Absolutely aspect of it that allows you to give your total attention to it how yes. important is it that you are the space aspect of it because there's the space well, aspect of what you've said and there's the social aspect the, the being with other people in yes, that are also yes. part of that writing retreat model so how important is it to step out of your normal office space to be able to do it and can you do it on your own or not really yeah, I think um, people, I think both are crucial, space and other people. Mm. Um, and I think um, having, you know, take, to take your last point there, though, that people say, people often say, why is it I can do this so well when I'm in the group, in the writing retreat group? 
and I find it I can't do this when at ho- when I'm at home. You know, why can't I just sit down and write on demand? Um, and it may be that they're still learning to change their behaviours, so they're just you know in some kind of transition from not being able to do it to being able to do it. And they just need to persist, or it may be they need to write with other people because that holds people to the change process. Because we know from the literature and behaviour change that when you try and do it individually, it will fail initially. And this is quite a big behaviour change, even if it's one that you want to make, it's likely to change. So going away and doing going away somewhere else, a different space, with other people who also want to do that, who buy into the model, um, makes it more likely to work. And the evidence shows that it, that it really does work. But there are, there is more recently, there are people, uh, Lucy Hines has developed um, what she calls remote retreat. And she has a Twitter thread where she's using my material and acknowledging my stuff all the time mm-hmm. she's been to my retreat which is nice um and she's really just sending out little tweets to say look do this do that this we're doing this now we're doing that now and really putting the boundaries up about the time um and i guess online space in a sense um using twitter so that that's early days with that but it shows that mm. you know you can work that way and people like at the open university they work that way all the time online so you know there are different ways of, of doing this without physically being in the same room um, but you can communicate by Skype and say right we're starting now we're stopping uh, now and use a kind of virtual group to to hold each other to the the times because that does seem to be key um to yeah to stick to that yeah the social accountability um and the social proof of other people doing it at well, the same time i think it's when you're in the retreat and everybody else is typing what people say was you know normally you know maybe at quarter to 11 if the first break is at 11 and people say they can smell the coffee i mean i can smell the coffee you know and you can hear them kind of getting everything ready everything's just about ready to come in and they say normally they would just stop and go and get coffee or walk the dog or put the laundry on and these are okay because they're they are breaks and it's good to stand up and not sit all day, That which is very dangerous for your health. But um, it, because they know they're not going to stop at 11 o'clock, there's no way they're going to stop just as and when they like. They keep writing or maybe they've had a bit of a block at 10.30 and they kind of, because again, they know they're not going to stop. They work through it and they say they work through the pain. Sometimes they say just to kind of overstate it just a little bit. And they work through what might have been a stop or a block and they just get it done. Yeah, because of the timings, and that astonishes. You know, they, they surprise themselves. Yeah, by just carrying on. So there are, I guess, specific changes in the writing behaviours, but specific changes and benefits to the actual outcomes for them, for them as individual writers with their writing. And once they see them, then they can see the benefit of sticking to the timings. So there's a, there, you're right. There's a lot going on in terms of the psychosocial stuff. But because everybody in the room is writing and because I'm there staring at you, if you want to stand up and walk about a bit, you know, um, that's really just not going to happen, actually. Nobody's going to stand up and walk about. There was one person who um, she put her headphones on, you know, they're listening to music and she starts to stamp her feet like that to time to the music. And I'm like, hello, turn it down, you know, <laughs> feet, no, no. <laughs> So without just, and she goes, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And they all carry on and they have a wee smile and they're all carrying on writing. So, there's somebody there kind of, I don't put headphones on because I'm attending to any background noise. Like if a lawnmower kicks off right outside the window, I will go and make sure they move it somewhere else until we're stopping. So, But it is, the social thing, I think, is key. And it's a kind of haven and it's a different set of relationships, maybe is the other point we haven't really yeah. covered yet. That the relationships are collegial and positive mm. and 
sympathetic and intellectual as well, you know, because people are talking about what are you doing, what are you working on, that's really interesting. Um, and there's a lot of exchanges about people's research methods and there's a lot of ways in which people are supporting each other out there that I hear about maybe later or not mm. at all. I overhear a little bit. So it's not all on me to help everybody with the writing. There's a lot of ex- exchange about, about writing goes on all the time. These yeah. are the discussions that happen at the breaks or in the evening. Oh. Exactly. Just yeah. in the in the breaks um, or out on the walk. You know, we walk at lunchtime. It's not enforced again, but, you know, I, I have time for activity because it's, a, it's important if you're mm-hmm. active anyway to have time for that within a writing process um, and it's important to allow time for people who might want to become a bit more active but yeah and in the evenings because the writing day is full-on and intensive and tiring so we have evenings off mm. which again is surprising to people who think they should be writing for 10 hours a day and I'm like no you know should I be doing some reading tonight and I'm like no I don't think so I think you should be resting so it would be quite good tomorrow you know and it's obvious in a way but it's like Again, it's maybe you said earlier on giving people permission to to rest and, and kind of recover from the yeah. next day. God, again, I, there's just so many. There are so many pieces there, <laughs> aren't there? Because um, you, you've talked a lot about behaviour change and getting new behaviours, yeah. and yeah. some yeah. of those seem to be about I don't know, just sort of like the whole process and rhythm of writing and what you need to do to bring your best self to the writing. So the things that you've mm-hmm. talked about about making sure you're having breaks and the importance of those and reinforcing that and going out for the walk at lunch and not working at night. They're about saying, you know, being a good writer involves those stepping back times as well and those moving the body times. So you're you're teaching people through your process about the importance of those aspects. And are you also teaching them things about, how to do the writing itself, like in the structuring of the writing or how to do an introduction or how to structure a paper? Is is that part of the behaviour change that you're uh, teaching as well? Yeah, sometimes I do a lot of that um, and sometimes I'll read people's stuff as well, you know, um, because I'm there to support people really. Sometimes I'm called on to do that a bit or a lot or not Mm -hmm. at all. It just depends on each group. Um, or one time I was talking about, uh, for example, um, I encourage people who are in the last eight or 12 months of thesis writing to do a 750 word thesis summary mm-hmm. that can sit at the end of the introduction. You'll know about this. Um, and it's just a paragraph in every chapter, 750 words. And it's the style is chapter one, verb, chapter two, verb, chapter three, verb. I talk about this in the fourth edition of my book, How to Write a Thesis. Um, but they might never have thought about this, might never really have done it, might not feel ready to do it. So what I've done is I've developed things like that that are now in the books, but they're they're retreat-specific interventions. I can say to them at the break, try this, and you can do that in the next 90 or 60-minute session, and then tell me in 90 or 60 minutes how it went, did it work, and show me it, and then I can give them feedback, and they can work on a revision in the next session. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of, if my students are there, it's great, because I can give them almost like, synchronous feedback and they can work on it next and then we can talk about what they did and then we can work on the next version um because once they get the 750 word thesis summary they're sorted mm. once we once i've looked at that 10 or 20 times and i usually say please don't tell your supervisors i said this that they have to look at this 20 times but once they've done that you know and it'll take me a minute to read it it's not like a huge imposition in my time it might take me five minutes to work out what to say as a supervisor you know times 10 or 20 it's not a lot mm. of time 
but it's such an important task. So there's little tasks like that I would suggest to people. I generally try not to read like a five or 10,000 word chapter because I'm like, no, you know, I, I might late, but not at retreat. I might occasionally, if it's my student, read it overnight, but probably not. So there's retreat specific things I can suggest because what's important is if they are kind of not quite sure of what to do, they have, they have something to do in the next session, which might be starting in 20 minutes. You know, if we're having coffee and scones or something, they've got to do something and the clock is ticking. What, what are they going to do? So I have to have retreat specific suggestions and a lot of them are in the books. Yeah. So are there other behaviours that you, when you talk about behaviour change, you know, because you also talked about managing the, the process, are there other sort of behaviours that you would point to as being particularly important or key? I mean, I think um, what's key for the structured writing retreats and probably helps people beyond the retreats is goal setting that um what I say, you know, at the introduction to a retreat or to any writing workshop, actually, is, you know, smart people are really good at setting goals, smart goals for analysing their data or, you know, you know how many scripts you can mark in an hour, you know how many dissertations you can read in a day or, you know, whatever, but not so much with writing. I'm like, well, you know, it's 80,000 words. How long is the literature review to be notionally? And within that, you know, have you got if it's 15,000 words, have you got three sections of 5,000 words? And you're probably thinking, no, they're not all the same length. And I'm like, well, exactly. Well, why would one be 7,000 words and one be 2,000 words? So it's like decide on the specific goal. And then within the writing retreat, which one are you going to work on? Count how many words. Think about how many words you're going to um, produce in the first 90 minutes. And I know you're thinking, oh, it depends what kind of writing I'm doing. And I'm like, well, yeah, it does depend. Decide. <laughs> decide on which kind of writing and have a verb for... The text, you know, the, the purpose of this report or chapter is to describe or summarise or critique or whatever. Um, and if you haven't got a verb, you've probably not decided on the purpose. OK, they come up with four or five verbs. OK, maybe those four or five are in the sequence. And have a look at them. Is that Are these the ones you really want to write about? And how many words per? So it's intellectual work. It's not just arithmetic. It is about mm. the numbers because that makes the goals specific. Um, but it's intellectual work and deciding on the structure and microstructures, if you like, the goals, sub-goals and sub-sub-goals, um, then you're designing the writing for the time that you actually have. And then, of course, it, it makes there's no point in doing any of that unless you monitor the extent to which you achieved it. And so that it, by, that is a process of learning to set realistic sub-goals for writing. Mm. You know, let's look at it. Um, and it's oh. to, there's motivation there as well. Um, so Goal setting, monitoring the extent to which you achieve the goal, developing self-efficacy, developing the belief that you can achieve your writing goals. And as I say, if you don't do that, you go, I know what I need to do. I'm smart. I'm just going to do it. It's not done yet. I'll carry on doing a bit, but it's, it's not done yet again. I've got 45 things to do. You know, that's that, that's guilt, fear and anxiety. That's the dark side. You've done that to yourself. You've not set a goal. You don't have a sense of achievement. It's still not done. You know, these things are still true for everybody. Mm. But you didn't incrementalise the writing. And it's not that you become a robot, a writing robot. It's just that you use goal-setting uh, principles to with writing like you do with other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's an argument. Yeah. yeah. But are there different personality types? I remember going to a writing workshop uh, when I was doing a PhD and this guy was using some of the – my, I think was he using Myers-Briggs, and I know that that's been largely discredited academically, but he was talking about people's different writing styles that he would have, he put up 
God has put up our hands whether we needed everything planned out fully in the beginning or whether we started at the beginning or started at the middle or you know and different people's uh-huh. writing uh-huh. styles and he was arguing that people had very different styles of writing and it was important to know what your style was and especially if you're working together so do you think from all of the people that you've seen in writing that there are different writing styles or should we all regardless be looking at planning and setting these sort of clear structured goals I think there are benefits to all of us setting you know specific writing goals but also knowing about the structure of arguments which is part of it you know the, mm. the rhetoric and composition stuff and uh, knowing something about that rather than just kind of winging it or the organic model let's just do a structure and see how it shapes up I think people everybody is different but I think what, the, what I do is I provide whether it's a workshop or a retreat I provide a framework within which they go so the framework is is there and obviously I may manage that and, and manage the the boundaries of that but within that, whatever they're doing is is probably quite different from person to person. And how they carry that model forward, uh, how they do the goal setting or whatever, um, is probably quite individual, I'm pretty sure. And also, I don't kind of specifically monitor that. You know, there's a kind of hard framework, but within that, the space is theirs, the time and space are theirs. Um, so I think there, is, there are different ways, um, for sure, in terms of planning and setting goals. But I think there are benefits in doing it for academic writers to do it more than they currently do, because it's about making intellectual decisions. It's not just about counting the number of words. It's about deciding on, on the content, the structure, the argument, proportions, coherence and all that good stuff. Um, and targeting, if it's about style, it's about targeting a specific audience for the journal. Um, and using a specific style or set of styles for, yeah. for a thesis, yeah. yeah. So I, I would argue that, you know, you said before, yeah. everyone knows how, how, lo- how long it takes to mark an exam script and that sort of thing in planning. I would say that I'm very good at underestimating that routinely even when I think I'm trying to add a bit of extra uh, because I know that I tend to underestimate, I'm still underestimated. It, <laughs> Do you just get good at estimating what you can do in a writing period just from practice or knowing your own style or is that just a, a problem of, that I have? No, I think you do get better at it. It is a learning process really, for sure. Um, and, you know, I, I go to them all. So since 2005 I've do, been doing a writing retreat just about every month, sometimes more than one a month. Amazing. So That's amazing. So, you know, I'm totally schooled in, in that that process. I mean, it's not to say that I don't still get papers rejected by journals because that still happens because it's, you know, it's super competitive. It's hyper competitive writing. Um, and sometimes I've got to watch because I can very fluently, once I blasted out a chapter and I sent it off and I, I got this feedback from the, the editor saying, do you know, we, 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 we kind of like, we'd like a little bit more of this. And they were very delicately saying it was rubbish. Actually. <laughs> and I looked Is at that it recently? Thought, this is a couple of years ago, yeah. not that long ago. And I was yeah. like, that's terrible. I said, I, had to, I emailed them immediately and said, I'm terribly sorry. I don't know what I was thinking of. I, I rattled this off and I thought it was good. And it's really not. I'll start again. I had to send them a whole new chapter. And you could almost hear them going, phew, you know, because they didn't want to offend me. I didn't want to offend them. And it was just men. So, I mean, the fluency, you've, you've got to watch with that as well. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's, it's a learned behaviour. But I think the... I guess 
where I'm at with it now is that this is a behavior I do with a lot of other people. So it's mm. not that I can only write with other people around, but it gives you that kind of intellectual life that we're talking about our writing, we're talking about our research. It's almost like a virtual university that we're forming with all the people who've been to retreats um, in my university and in other universities mm. and other places I go. And I think that's um, that's a kind of missing component of intellectual life in universities, yeah. if I were to generalise widely there. Um, yeah. And I think it provides something that we are craving, actually, that's that that's exposed by by writing there, but the way we do writing there, but um, and the conversations we have about it. But you know, I'm not sure there's anything I can do about that. I mean, I kind of reflect on this regularly. I think, you know, why are you not more of an activist, an activist feminist? Why don't you do this and this? And I'm like, well, I kind of am. You know, I'm I'm sort of. It's more like a resistance movement than. Mm. and up there at the barricades mm. it's, it is kind of like providing immediate change and immediate help for people and it works for me as well which mm. you know I think is fair enough so I've started more recently to think this is it's kind of like getting people through you know like the resistance would do as opposed to standing in the front front line blasting away because I just can't do that I, I just find it meaningless the committee work and the standing up and giving, you know, the big talks and the writing the big reports and working in the command corridor. I just can't go there. I mean, no discredit to them at all. They're doing what they're doing. Um, but I just can't work in that front. Um, but I can do this more. Um, and it's more immediate. I mean, I think there is more. It's not just that I need more immediate feedback that I'm helping people, but it's I'm achieving stuff with my own writing. And it does play into my... Um, capacity to help people yeah. my, um, intention to help people get through and that's part of intellectual work as well as a PhD supervisor that is part of what you're doing so yeah but yeah. but as you've sort of alluded to or said that yeah. it's not stuff that people are trained in how to write how yeah. to structure arguments and yet it's the bread and butter of what we're yeah. supposed to be about and the same yeah. thing that you said before about people not putting time in their plan to to write and there's something that's almost sort of trained into us that yes, that work just happens. It's this other work that gets in the plan, which are about the meetings and the writing of these other reports about doing work that we should be doing or trying to pretend that we're doing. And somehow we're missing what's really, what are the core skills and what are the core habits and behaviours and knowledge that we need to do our intellectual work? Yeah, and I think there's a myth that we all know this already or that really smart people smarter than us mm. do this easily and we somehow have a problem and then when you start talking about writing which happens very rarely on campus in relation to other talk then that's seen that could be seen as a weakness as well and then when you start talking about your achievements like your publications well some people will want to clip your wings when you start doing that even although it's in the university's interest in the department's interest not just in your interest to be published in four-star journals, for example, um, you'll draw fire, you know. So in highly competitive environments, obviously writing won't be discussed, the process or even the outputs, ironically, except at reviews. So the exchange of knowledge about writing the outputs or, you know, what was your paper about would be interesting knowledge yeah. to exchange. Also, what was, the pro what was the process about? We're never going to talk about that in yes. these, in these um, academic settings. Yes, it's a discussion that yeah, I find I have a lot with PhD students is just oh. trying to say that there's there's 
the paper looks like it's flowed easily when you read a paper published, but you uh -huh. don't see the work and the iterations and the versions. And I think one of the things that I try to do and I think we can try to do is make that process more visible to people. And, I mean, what you're doing is just sort of a steps way ahead. And what I like about what you're doing is, A, you, you just make it, bread and butter that writing is a process to be learned and a skill to be learned mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that and it, that we can do it if we mm -hmm. can put in place some of these structures and and processes around it mm -hmm. yeah there are structures and processes yeah there are structures and processes and activities there are ways of doing the writing you know in and in writing workshops i would get people to do some of these so it's mm -hmm. a practical workshop they do it and what always comes up, even last week, I was doing a workshop at a really good university in England and they were saying, you know, they were talking about perfectionism. They said, you know, they know in their heads that, that a, pa a paper isn't written perfect, right, first draft. And they know rough draft is called rough draft for a reason. But they still hesitate to write that first sentence or once they've written the first sentence, to write the second one because the first one's not perfect. So they describe this again and again, and PhD students do it quite easily, but academics as well and researchers, very bright people in, across the disciplines are saying they hesitate to write because although they know it's not going to be perfect first time, they have the perfectionism and then they have the procrastination. So there is an existing paradigm that is actually quite dysfunctional and stressful for people that we need a we need an alternative to. Yeah. Yeah. So on your web page, you say that you know your research and teaching is in academic yeah. writing, and that makes it sound like that's uh, wonderful. And you're clearly so passionate about academic writing, and to have been able to make it this uh, this sort of frontline activism, you know, making a difference mm -hmm. for people and doing it as part of your research makes it sound like it's that's great and easy for you. But I'm sure that the path to get to there was not so easy <laughs> in the current climate. But can you reflect on? that how you've been able to hold on to this as an area that you care about and turn it into something that you spend so much time on and that you can earn your research brownie points on yeah i mean in the beginning i was quite committed to um bringing some of that knowledge from the us to the uk and clearly nobody no department in the infrastructure of a university in the UK wants to be teaching these courses. I mean, they're, they're in a composition unit in the US would be in an English department or somewhere. And the equivalent here would be study skills or centre for academic practice, which is where I worked. So I must have helped dozens, maybe hundreds of students complete PhDs that somebody else would have got credit for as their supervisor. So that was kind of covert helping because people would come to me and I would tell them, blah, 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 sometimes over weeks or months, a couple of people over years to help them get their, their, their thesis written. So in a way, I was happy to do that. That was my job, and I learned a lot doing that, and I started writing the books, although I was told that books, writing books was not part of my job, so I had to write the books in my own time, which means I got a very clear conscience about keeping the royalties because I wrote them in my I did write them in Indeed, my own time. Indeed, yeah. So, so there were certain frustrations about it not finding a place in the infrastructure and me not getting credit for all the outputs that I was responsible for, helping people be responsible for themselves, I should say. Um, and I guess as I began to do, you know, get some research funding and get some data and get some journal articles and I guess become established in the field of academic writing because it is now a pretty established field 
in the UK and in other countries. Um, I have a peer group now and um, that should be fine. But I mean, very recently, I mean, last year, somebody quite senior uh, said to me, um, sat back and looked at me quizzically. So, so you do academic writing about academic writing? <laughs> and I just, I'm just, I just said yes, and I just kind of closed my notebook, and I thought this conversation is going nowhere. You know, I just thought I'm not going to even. I mean, what can you do? Because that person's mind is closed to the idea of this being a field in itself. And so, on the one hand, I know it is, and I now have an identity in that field and some standing and outputs in that field. And on the other hand, I know you've got to be very fluid in how you find a job to do that, uh, to work in that field. And I know lots of other people have had this. It's not, this is not just about myself, but, you know, jumping from Centre for Academic, English Department, Centre for Academic Practice, School of Education, you know, and as you move up in your career, you need to jump anyway. So um, it's complex. It's a bit tricky. Um, and you have to mm. be, I suppose, a bit flexible. Um, and I'm quite fortunate to have got to where I am. Um, to become a professor um, in this field, you know, given that most women don't get to be a professor anyway, um, and to be a professor in in the field of academic writing. But I was asked at the interview um, for this job, I was asked, um, so what's your international expertise and what's your international reputation in? And I went, academic writing. Um and I just, you know, that was all I said. Normally, previously, I'd, I'd be given them a kind of 10-minute oration about what that meant. And I just mm-hmm. said, yeah, academic writing. So that was an achievement for you to just be able to step into that and claim that. And just say it. Yeah, and just claim it. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, because otherwise you, you sound more defensive because you're you're almost defining it as a career and as an international mm-hmm. reputation, whereas, in fact, it is. And they either, they either looked at the CV and see that or they don't. You know, I've had international appointments in different countries and, and the whole nine yards. So they can either see that, not that they've all necessarily read the CV, maybe. But, yeah, I just didn't go there. And for me, that was quite a turning point. I really don't know where that came from. Normally, as I say, I would give you a thousand words where one would do. <laughs> and it sounds like you were giving a thousand words because you were taking, you were doing it from that defensive stance because you're used yeah. to getting the people who did that. You do yeah. academic writing on academic writing, sort of sceptical yes. response. Yeah, and I, I suppose I don't have, you know, I don't have as much fear of that perspective anymore mm. and I don't feel the need to defend it so much anymore. And I know others maybe, you know, aren't in such a privileged position, but also I've had it with that. You know, it's like it's such an important intellectual task. Yeah, and if they're taking that position, I kind of see there's a limit to the extent to which I can persuade them otherwise. Yeah, you know, yeah. I just I think well, I'm, you know, and maybe I should try harder, but actually I think this person is not going to get it. You know, um, if again if they've looked at your CV and they're not going to get it, then what can you do? You know, um, so I, I'm kind of clear about what I feel I can and can invest that kind of persuasive power on or persuasive mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. But you. It, you did. You do recognise that as that sort of turning point where you you stepped into it. Yeah. What kept you going up to there? Because it must have been uncomfortable in the journey to that point where you sort of again you know, felt that confidence. What what was important? It's a very good question. Um, because you know it was um, very challenging. You know, and there were times. 
there was times when I felt I was being held back in terms of promotion because mm. I wasn't in at every point in my career I wasn't always I was in an academic post but I was in a kind of academic related department so so I applied and get knocked back a number of times for different promotions and I think for a period there, at its worst, uh, what kept me going was playing competitive volleyball. So I went and had to go and play my sport. And you have to concentrate so much in the match that it literally takes your mind off the dark things going on at work. Um, and as you achieve more, what I found was there would be more people trying to hold me back or clip my wings. So I had to, you know... <sighs> I think and I think that's when, and I've been writing about this in the book I'm working on at the minute, about women professors. How did we get there, given all the barriers? Um, what I'm writing about is how I set up the first writing group that I was in, and it was one of maybe one of the first in an academic setting. Um, and that kept me going, because I was doing my job of helping people write. I was writing my own publications, and I was working with like-minded people from other departments, not just people in your own department where different agendas are running. So for everybody in the group, it cut across the, the agendas of departments. Um, so I guess it was, you know, it was maybe always on the cards that writing groups and writing retreats were always going to be there for me because um, it's it has been a haven for me as well. Um, and I don't know what, what, what I would have done had I not had that kind of social support throughout my career. And you pick up hints and tips about how to adjust your CV and the application. And so you pick up stuff as you go along as well. Um, but it was more just having an alternative space, be it sport or writing yeah. groups or whatever. Yeah. This resonates with some of the uh, experiences that Ali Black talked about another podcast from a little while ago. Who, okay. Yeah. Who um, so also set up you know, in... in choosing to respond to challenges in the way that you did, also set up a, a peer writing group with other like-minded women. Yeah. So it was that was something that you just decided you needed to do. You needed that support. You went out and found the people that you, you wanted to connect with. Yeah. I mean, I might originally have thought I was doing it to support them, but, you know, quite soon you can see, and certainly looking back, I can see that it was really supporting me. Um, and giving me satisfaction but it was also doing my job because it was clear that you know it's okay helping yourself to help but you have to also be mm. doing the job and I could always make that case and that fended off some of the criticism about what you're doing sitting here chatting and eating biscuits you should be writing well we are actually writing you know so it's a pro it's a process over a career isn't it because you know you you again you've talked about the ways in which you were writing your books because that's what you wanted to do and how you thought you could make a difference but having to do it uh -huh. in your own time, struggling to get promoted because it, you weren't being recognised, that work wasn't being recognised clearly or you weren't fitting into some sort of standard model. And at the same time in being able to create these spaces for yourself to step out and play volleyball and think of something else or set up support structures. You also then talked about the ways in which you did start getting grants and you did start getting journal papers. But mm -hmm. you were achieving those system-recognised outcomes driven from a different place in a way, like driven from still what you wanted to do rather than stepping out of what you wanted to do to buy into that you had to get grants or had to get journal papers. Would that be a fair sort of reflection? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because 
you know, it's there's the intellectual curiosity about, well, I know this works, but I can't just run around asserting that it works. Um, which is why you start, you know, say so this really works, this really works, like yeah. show and tell. Um, but you do need to kind of interrogate it a bit and get some evidence and so on. So I, I guess as an intellectual, I kind of bought into that. Maybe that was the bridge for me. But I was conscious of, and there is an ambivalence about it, it is providing counters in somebody else's game. Um, but it's maybe also improving my game in the sense that um, I'm understanding more about what's happening at writing retreats. For example, yes. when we did the containment papers using containment theory, which was somebody else's theory, they said, this is this helps explain how retreats work. And then they said, we have to do a second paper on the container, the role of the container, which is you. And I went, no, I don't. I've got a very light touch thing going on here. I do hardly anything. I'm doing my writing. And they're like, no, we're going to write about how you do. And so we did. So that was literally a learning process for me about what works, how retreats work. Um, and also about my role, about, you know, I had to think I had to think more and differently about the role I was playing, which I thought was doing practically nothing, mm, which it kind of is, yeah. but it's also not. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. It's in doing nothing that makes it happen that you do a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, if you run, the, it's like if you build it, they will come. If you run the program, they will write sort of thing. But you're also tuning into everybody else's anxieties and ignoring them but you're aware of stuff you know you're also doing a lot of quite sensitive stuff i think if you and if listening out for the mower to turn get it moved and <laughs> that's right that's right that's yeah, right protecting the space yeah. yes uh-huh. yeah 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 so, i think it needs actively protected yeah because mm. you know the funding starts off at the top level for retreats and then it goes down and down and then people have to fund it themselves and then it goes away so it has to be, be protected in a number of senses the writing space that we've created mm. um because it is threatened by other people's understandings of how academic writing gets done. Mm, yeah, sounds wonderful. Um, I was curious that you said that it's mostly women who yeah. you have coming to these retreats, and it's clearly not advertised just to women because nope. you have a lovely web page on the um, Anchorage Education and the Writing Retreats that I'll link to. Um, Good. Do you have any reflections on why that might be? We have lots. Um, it's always discussed because it's always observed and I'm always asked and I always ask everybody there what they think. Um, but it's it has. I have to say that it's um, almost always women at my retreats, but this would be true at other people's retreats as well, um, unless it's built into an accredited course as it is at University of Limerick where they had a more balanced, more gender balance. Um or where it's a departmental group. If I was working with a group over a number of years where the head of department came along and other men came as well. Um, so maybe that's that's part of what the difference is about. Um, but yeah, the, the theories about why it's mainly women is um, it's called a right and retreat and it sounds a bit touchy-feely and a bit like you might be exposed in that environment and we should call it boot camp, which I'm not going to. Um, you know, boot camp would attract more men and I know there are other good things that are called boot camp like you know one of my heroes Inger Mewburn um, at Canberra um, she calls her some of her things boot camp and that's fine that's great but I won't be doing that for that purpose I'm thinking about running men only advertising a men only retreat and see what happens with that but it's other theories are that it's you know it's a more discursive model and it's a more cooperative collaborative model 
even although most of the time at retreat is people spent sitting writing on their own. Mm. So it's quite solitary within the group model, actually. Um, and once it becomes established that more women go, then more women go. It's run by a woman, might be another factor as well. But uh, we've just done some research with some women who've attended on this very question because the question comes up all the time. And what we found by talking to, to women about this specifically uh, and we've just um, I've just sent a paper in a few months ago to a journal about this. What I found is um, that it's the writing retreats that I've run are a space away from all the other demands of different kinds, so many different kinds of women for women in their work lives and their personal lives. Um, and both getting away from both are really important and getting away from discriminatory settings is really important. So that's that would be how our paper concludes, is that you're leaving behind the discriminatory practices for two days so that you can focus on writing. Mm. And that might be why more women than men attend, because even if men are discriminated against, they're not as discriminated against as much as I was, and still am, in a sense. Mm. Yeah. And what ways do you think that you're still discriminated against? What I would say about becoming a woman professor is that the the undermining, the bullying, the pressure, the unremitting criticism intensifies, has intensified throughout my career. And that's at different universities and in different settings. Um, and sometimes even when I'm just in a university for a day, there's a little bit that goes on. And I don't think that's about me as Rowena Murray as a person, that I'm attracting that. And I've talked to enough women, other senior women and women at different stages in their careers and men. And um, I know this happens in other places as well. And I'm trying to alert younger women who are in earlier stages of the ladder that this might not go away. It might go away when you get promoted, but it might not go away. So um, I just think the unremitting undermining and attacks and bullying um, just over the years Sorry, I've forgotten the question. What was the question? So just um, we could we could generalise it, yeah, because sure, sure. you do Go talk to, you do talk to so many people and yeah. you know, and have contact with so many people and visit so many universities in running retreats. Yeah. Um, in what ways do you see discrimination being experienced right. or playing out? Yeah, um, I think just. Or that undermining, you know. It's, it's just that there's, there's, I think even as a woman professor, there's a constant and intensified um, undermining, bullying. Um, whereas I know that male colleagues of mine in certain universities, uh, when they became professors, it was massively celebrated. They immediately got their business cards. The office staff started treating them differently. And I'm not saying that's all right, that the hierarchical thing. I'm just saying it was a much more positive experience. And I have experienced, uh, well, I know that some people, some women experience none of that and they're the very opposite of that. Um, and that that's the kind of um, leaving you out of things, deciding things without consulting you, um, gradually diminishing the role that you have over a number of years. Um, it's almost like there's a playbook, actually, that people are using. Um, so... That's what I mean by that. There's discrimination at all levels, which mm. I think is borne out by the statistics in terms of the number of appointments at different levels of men and women. Yes. So we still haven't got that sorted yet. And I guess at, at the strategies that we're using, which are about working on women's confidence or women's networking, okay, that's all very good. But if we're not actually working on the infrastructure and exactly. the people who are making the decisions, which is mainly men, 
then I don't know that we're going to fix it doing that. We can support the women. That's really good. That's important. Yeah. But if we're not actually working on the people who are making the decisions, then the decisions won't change with the best will in the world, possibly. But they're still going to make the same decisions. And then even when people get into the job, if we don't work on appreciating a diverse way, diverse ways of um, engaging and making decisions and, and working together, if we still accept sort of a, a dominant model that appeals to some sections of the population more than others and women tend to be more in the others and it's not exclusively women, as you said, that's also not helping, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think men and women who don't have the right behaviours and maybe don't to get to that top level to make the decisions, but I don't want to be there anyway. I don't want to be at the top level. I don't want to be doing these things on a daily basis. I don't want to be making those decisions on a daily basis. And I don't want to be the minority in the room on a daily basis. I mean, I've done that. I have chaired the Women's Committee. I have been in Senate. I've been yeah. in court. I've done a lot of these senior level things. I've been Associate Dean. That's the highest I ever wanted to go to. Um, but I don't want to do that. Um, it's, it doesn't, it, it, I don't thrive on it, you know. Um, and I don't want to be the person in the room who represents my gender or my sexuality or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I recognise that's where we're at in our evolution as a species. And I don't think I can do much about that, apart from I can help um, women and men who want to write more, uh, to write more and to get on with each other and have this intellectual interaction in, the, in these ways. Yeah. Because that, that intellectual interaction was also something you talked about as a key part of your writing retreats. You know, yes. It's that lovely yeah. discussion and exchange of ideas and people across different disciplines. Um, what, what advice do you give? You said you talk to younger women and you know, let them know yeah. that this won't necessarily go away. What sort of advice do you give to them? Um, I mean... I suppose I talk about my experiences and the intensification of uh, the unremitting, undermining, as I call it. Um, so just to make them aware um, of what's going to come, um, not to say that that will happen to them all. Um, what advice I would give them, I guess, is to get themselves into groups like this. I mean, they already know when they plug into and set up their own groups for writing and the intellectual exchange and all that comes with that, um, that will get them through, I think. I think if you try and get through the academic career in this discriminated position yourself, I think it can break you, really. I think it's really, it's really, I, I don't think I'm overstating it. Mm. You know? I've been quite close to that point myself. If you're trying to, and then you kind of internalise that maybe it's just about me, actually. So all that dark thing can occur and I think you need um, the group to really process all that stuff. And your department might not be the group because, there's, you know, everybody's competing there. Yeah. Your head of department might be fantastic, but might not process that stuff with you because he or she will be doing the review in due course. And so it's how you build that. I guess I've built it through the writing groupings that are about much more than just the writing. Um and I think it, that was that's what I would advise them to do is to form little groups. And some people go away and they say, oh, I tried to form a writing group, but only two people came. And I'm like, well, that's your group. <laughs> that's the start of your group. Yeah. Just, you know, two other people is probably the minimum yeah. and it's much easier to organise than 10 people. 
And in the course of talking about writing, you will inevitably talk about other stuff, about your career, about getting knocked back, about your promotion, about how you hate writing the case for it again, you know, how it's much stronger and you get knocked back again. You know, you'll inevitably talk about some of these things. And I guess the key is just to not let all that talk interfere with the writing. (laughs) You've got to still keep the writing going. I find myself really torn around these issues because I... I also have no desire to move into those upper, you know, sort uh-huh. of core management roles. But I'm also really aware of the impact that the, the current cultures are having on people. And yeah. I, I see that, you know, that there's a, an approach that's about more bottom-up and seeding different cultures in your local environments and the local relationships and connections you have. And in some ways, you know, and this is I'm doing this was about sort of surviving in the current environment and mm-hmm. not changing it radically. But I don't know how to do it because I'm I'm not going to. I don't think I would be the best person to move into a senior management position and get caught up in all sorts of horrible strategic mm-hmm. thinking. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just how do we get good, clever people to do that? You know, that because there must be people who have the skills and experiences and the passion to, to do yeah. that, make that yeah. change happen. I think there are. And, you know, I've met young men and women who have that, um, have the capacity, I think, to, to go into leadership positions. But again, I would say to them, get some way of protecting, you know, if we're having that conversation, I mean, I don't impose this conversation on all of them, mm-hmm. but if we're having that conversation about where they're going in their careers, then, I would say, you know, make sure you've got this network. And it's not just network, it's like an intellectual um, peer network uh, where you're actually talking about your work and doing the work together. It's not just that we're processing the latest barrier to our careers. I think it's not just a kind of support group like that. Um, I think it's where we actually do intellectual work is maybe a little bit different from the other support networks we've all been in. Um so I guess just encouraging them to do that to get some kind of insurance policy against the super competitive stuff. Yeah. 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 And that's good because it keeps people, it will keep people sane and healthy and looking after themselves. And you actually seem to be very good at looking after yourself and recognising yes. what you need to stay yes. sane, whether it's going out and playing volleyball or yes. um getting a support network together. What other things do you do to look after yourself and to, you know, yeah. Um I do self. I do stay active, I do stay yeah. quite fit. Um and I do wear my Fitbit and monitor my heart rate and the mixture of ex- exercise, you know, of training and exercise that I do is all quite thought out and my partner's in cardiology, so I have the best information about how to do that. Um but I also do nothing sometimes, you know, particularly if you've been doing a writing retreat. Um it's you know it's it's almost like you're euphoric, but you are actually exhausted as well. So you've got to do a little look after yourself a couple of days afterwards. So I would read fiction or um, watch see a film or you know something completely different, mm. something just leisure. Just I, I'm a great believer in not working in the evenings and not working at, at the weekends. I don't do that anymore. We've all done it, yeah, but I'm not doing it. Um, so you know I keep I guess clear boundaries between my work. I don't even talk about work much at home, actually. I used I used to want to talk about it more, but actually it's been quite good just to separate it out mm-hmm. so you don't bring it all home with you. Um, 
so yeah, it's spending a lot of time with friends. Um, we've got quite a village community going on here, so we do stuff in the village. So that altruistic stuff, raising money for the hospice, I do a lot of that kind of thing on a smallish scale at the moment. Um, I've gone 0.5 now. I'm half-time professor and half-time my own business. So doing that means I felt it was suggested to me by my line manager, I need to say, um, that I do the retreats um, for my university. Um, so I'm doing that quite happily. That's been a really good idea. and But it means I feel 0.5 free to do that. And that feels, you know, I have to monitor the finances of all of that more carefully. But that's not really that hard to do. So I get a sense of self-sufficiency and not just helping people, but building the business and, and building our kind of retiring future together. Um, and I meet a lot of new people at retreats. That's very good, I think. You know, every time I'm not entirely sure who's going to turn up. So Touchwood so far, we've, that's gone very well. Mm. <laughs> but it's a bit risky if you think about it. You don't know who's going to turn up. You know their names and their email addresses, but I don't scope them out before they come. Um so meeting a lot of new people is really healthy as well. Yeah, mm. yeah. you're ticking lots of good well-being boxes Aye. there. Mm. Yeah. As long yeah. as eating well and hydrating and, you know, sort of basic human functions as Not well. Not sitting too long, as you said before, no. sitting too long is bad for you. No, and talking to people like you as well, you know, having a bit of a chat and a bit of a laugh about the serious stuff, but being able to um, have a sense of humour about it as well would be a way, a way I have of talking about writing and doing the writing workshops and stuff. Um, you know, and I come over, I put on the kind of scary woman face just to kind of, <laughs> and then they all they kind of roll their eyes like this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, so we do that bit of banter just so it doesn't get too heavy, really, you know. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's a really nice point about, you know, mm. keeping the humour and, and mm. keeping it mm. light. Is it is yeah. only work in the end. Yeah, it's only part of your life, yeah, that's true. So I'm just conscious of time marching on. And okay. so are, are there any things that you, I don't know, that you'd like to have talked about or discuss or any any thoughts that have come up? Um, I suppose I've touched on it in passing, but just to say that, you know, some of the relationships we've developed at Retreat and Through Retreat, like, for example, the person who suggested we have this talk, um, all of these have been super important to me and I think to them as well. So there's some really special kind of friendships or intellectual friendships that you, you develop because you've been at writing retreats. And and I know I kind of am going on about writing retreats all the time, but it is a kind of particular environment that is doing the intellectual work for me. Um, so I think just to acknowledge um, the importance of academic friendships um, mm. and conversations like this. Yeah. Which I think so. I think it's a great thing you're doing is to say let's talk this way about that stuff. You know, it lets us kind of loosen up about it a little bit, see that it's really serious stuff. That there's some things we can do to make it better for ourselves and for others. And in the course of that, we meet some great people and we have some great chats. Mm. And you know, that's that's probably a great part of our life actually. If we can just keep the bad stuff at arm's length, then. Uh, they'll probably hate us saying that, but I mean, I think that is what we're doing here. We are putting a bit of a, a barrier around, a protective barrier around these friendships. But I mean, that's what academic life should be about. It's about these intellectual exchanges and the connections that you make through initially maybe a brain thing, but then you kind of get to know each other as people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's a win-win-win. It's great. Yeah. So I just acknowledge academic friendships through 
whatever sort of meetings. It's, it's, I guess it's more about retreats because at conferences you might meet somebody and click, but you might not see each other after five minutes of chat, whereas at retreat, but two days, you know, to kind of build the friendship a bit more. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a lovely note to end on, just reflecting yeah. on the importance of academic friendships. Yeah. And yeah. What's important in it. So thank you so much for your time. It's just been a real <laughs> pleasure and honour being able to talk with you. Well, it's a pleasure for me as well. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you for inviting me. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. Mm-hmm.